All right, I encourage you to open up your Bible to Psalm 8. So we're looking at Psalm 8 this morning. We're taking a little break from 1 Corinthians for a couple weeks again. So picture this. You're stuck in traffic on the highway. Maybe it's weekend, long weekend traffic. It's stop and go. It's hot. You're late. And then someone zips past you in the other lane. They quickly cut in front of you. And in the process, they clip your fender. And there's a jolt and a sickening crunch. They get out. They're from a different culture. They're really angry. And in a thick accent, they start yelling at you. How do you feel about this person? Be careful. You have come face to face with someone made in God's own image. Someone glorious. C.S. Lewis once remarked, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere, a mere mortal. Each human being, even the road rage maniac, is uniquely special and precious. They're someone fearfully and wonderfully made. Someone created to show the whole universe what God is like and how glorious God is. That's what Psalm 8 has to say. It begins by pointing our attention to God, like we've been singing this morning, how great is our God pointing our attention to God and God's creation. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. This psalm is basically expressing the feeling that we have when we stare up at the night sky on a clear night. We see the Milky Way or maybe a shooting star. Or we watch the sunset over the Grand Canyon, painting it in a million colors. And we realize how amazing and how big the God is who created all this. Then we turn around and we look at the people we're with. The sibling or spouse who we were just bickering with in the car. Our child or our sister or brother who's whining about wanting French fries and aren't we done yet. Somebody next to us who's picking their nose, maybe. And the psalmist remarks, so what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. That's the way the new NIV translates son of man, which in Hebrew parallelism is another way of expressing mankind. Of course, the New Testament picked that up and applied it to Jesus, but that's later in the story. So basically, the psalmist is asking, why did God make people? And even more, why did God elevate people to such a status? People are a paradox, aren't we? And this psalm explores that paradox. On the one hand, in many ways, we're similar to animals. We're flesh and bone. We eat plants and flesh. We relieve ourselves. We procreate. When we die, we rot we decompose, we return to the dirt. And yet, on the other hand, we are so unlike the animals. We write sonnets that inspire and stir. 
We construct cathedrals. We send people to outer space. We find our identity in the fashions we wear. We seek and long for soulmates and kindred spirits. We ponder the meaning of our own existence. And so the psalmist ponders this paradox and reflects on how God has situated us above the creatures of the earth, but yet beneath the glorious beings in the heavens. Yet the psalmist insists that we are much closer to the heavenly beings than to the earth creatures. You have made humanity a little lower than the angels, the psalmist says, and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swims the paths of the seas. We are the ones among God's creations who span both heaven and earth. We're created on earth, yet we're made for heaven as well. And that's because we've been made in the image of God. Sam Barquette asked me to speak on this topic this Sunday and next, which I thought was a great idea because, as we just heard, there's been a task force working for the last couple years, almost, on the topic of race and diversity, and they're about ready to release their report, their findings to us. That's the thing that's happening on the 18th, which you'll be hearing more about during Sunday school during, on the 18th. And hopefully this topic of the image of God that, that humans, all humans, are created in the image of God will get us in the right headspace and the right heart space to think about our differences and how we treat those who are different from us. So what is the image of God? What does this phrase mean? Well, do you realize it's not originally a biblical term? It's a term that was part of the broader culture in the ancient world, a term the Bible picked up on and did something fascinating and wonderful with. In the ancient world, image of God was a term often applied to kings and rulers, such as Pharaoh Ramses II. I'm not sure that's his picture, but close enough for our purposes. Uh, image of God was applied to great ones, great rulers. They were considered to be the images of the gods, whatever gods those cultures revered. To be an image of God in the ancient world was to be important. It was to be exalted. It was to be elite. It was to be far superior to everyone else. It worked this way. The gods, of course, were invisible. They lived in the heavens. You couldn't reach them or see them. So people made images of those gods, idols, statues. And they put those idols, those images, in temples, luxurious homes for their gods. And they believed that through certain ceremonies, the god that that idol was an image of could, could come to inhabit the image so you could see and worship and pray to and sacrifice to the god more tangibly. And then a lot of ancient cultures took it one step forward. They believed 
that their kings as well were images of the gods. Because like their idols, their kings dwelt in lavish, ornate buildings. And like their idols, their kings were decked in gold and jewels. And like their idols, their kings were feared and honored. And so many came to believe that their kings, their rulers, were semi-divine and were embodiments of their gods. And so they viewed their kings, like their idols, as images of God. And do you know what the corollary of this is? It's that all the other people, the normal people, the little people, are not images of God. And so truth be told, all those people don't really matter that much. They're expendable. They're not worth worrying too much about. And it's against this backdrop that the Bible says, nope, wrong. (laughs) You surrounding cultures, you have the image of God all wrong. The image of God is not an idol. Don't make those. The true God is too amazing, too exalted to be captured or worshipped by any statue. And the image of God is not the king. Humans, all humans, are too exalted, too wonderful to reserve the image of God just for one privileged person. No, in fact, everyone is the image of God. Not just the king, not just some exalted figure. No, everyone, male and female, from the king right down to the farmer in the fields. If we could have the next slide. Few of you will get the reference. From the king right down to the farmer who toils in the fields, the one with a broom in their hand who sweeps their house or sweeps their street, they are all, we are all, every one of us in the image of God. Do you see how profoundly democratizing this is? how it empowers people, how it lifts us up and says that every single person matters, that each of us is a wonder, that each of us has awesome value. Do you see how it cuts across the human tendency again and again to make certain people less than? And it's usually people different than us that we do this to, people who are not from around here, People who don't look like us or smell like us or talk like us or think like us or act like us. People who don't speak in perfect English or perfect whatever language it is that we speak. People who don't follow our rules of the game the way we think everyone should follow or measure up to our standards in terms of the things that we think matters. Those people too, including the road raid maniac, the Bible says, are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are exalted. They are precious because they are the very image of God. They have been made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. Every one of them. Again, as C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
we as humans are so used to measuring people and putting them on a scale from the really wonderful and valuable and important down to the lowly, the loser, those who really don't matter so much, although we might be too polite to admit that we think that. But God's word cuts across all of that and says, no, there's only one kind of person and we are all made in the image of God. I grew up out in the country, not uh, near a, a very small town in an area that was not economically prosperous. And lots of the kids, the school I went to got free lunches. Um, they may not have had breakfast that morning, some of them. Their dads drove rusty trucks, if they even had a dad. They lived maybe in a trailer or in a rundown rental property, a lot of them. But then I went off to college, to, to Bucknell University, and suddenly I was around a lot of wealth. I was around BMWs and all the latest fashions and spring break trips to warm places. And I was surrounded by wonderful ideas as well, by big ideas and profound ideas, and I was being enlightened. And I remember coming home for, for break one summer, and I must have been picking up the, the spirit of the school I was at and developing a growing sense of my own importance, because I remember my mom taking me aside and saying, you know, the people you're with at college, they may have a lot of money and they might be really knowledgeable and they might have parents who have important jobs, but you don't become that way so that you look down on the people you grew up with. You don't look down on anyone because we're all equally made fearfully and wonderfully in the image of God. So that raises the next question. Why? Why did God make us in God's image? Why did God make a of himself? What did he do that for? In fact, why did God make this world and populate the whole world with images of God? Well, we, I see two reasons in our psalm. And when you realize what images of God were and what they meant in the ancient world, both of these reasons make a lot of sense. So the first reason, if we can have the next slide, is so that we reflect God's glory, so that we point to our glorious God. Verse 5. We are crowned with glory and honor. Crowned, like a king is crowned, with glory and with honor. Now, of course, God has all glory and honor first. So when God crowns us with glory and honor, God is crowning us with God's own glory and honor. God is taking God's glory and God's honor and putting some of it on us. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God share his glory? Well, again, think of what an image of God is. An idol, a statue, or an ancient king, each of which is supposed to represent the God they're an image of. An idol represents a God sitting in a splendorous temple, showing off that God's glory. People should be able to look at the idol and see how glorious the God is. That was the idea. So when God made this world to be God's temple, 
God put images of himself in the temple on this earth. God did it to represent God, to bring glory to God here on earth. We have been crowned with glory and honor so that we can bring glory and honor to the one who crowned us. Question, how is the human race doing at that? How are we, how are you doing at that? Do you realize it's your life's purpose? More basically, more fundamentally than figuring out who you are or finding friends or discovering your calling in life or getting a job or finding a spouse or having a family, your most basic life purpose is to bring glory and honor to the one who created you. You are that one's image. And we do it by the way we live in the world God has made. In his book, You Are God's Plan A, Dwight Roberts tells a story about a kid who discovered this. Years ago, Roberts, Roberts writes, I spoke in the Dominican Republic for a ministry that works with kids struggling with behavioral problems. One of the boys, Lance, approached me after one of my talks and asked if he could talk with me. He shared what was happening in his life that week. Clearly, God was lighting a fire in his heart. Lance explained that he had entered this program not because he was rebellious or had broken the law like many of the other kids. His parents had asked him to enter the program so he could gain more structure and discipline in his life. I've gotten a lot out of my time here, Lance said, but now I'm thinking it might be time to go home. I want to help people learn more about God. Maybe I could make a bigger difference in the lives of some of my old friends. What do you think, Dwight? You might be right, I replied, but is it possible that God is giving you a temporary assignment while you're still here? Is it possible that he wants to use you to minister to kids right here while you're with them? His eyes lit up as I continued sharing with him a vision for his temporary assignment. That's it, he exclaimed suddenly. There is something I can do for the other kids while I'm still here. I know things about their lives that their parents don't know, stuff that not even the staff knows. I'll pray for them and I'll talk with them as God leads. Dwight, some of them are pretty messed up. I hope I can help. Over the next few days, Lance and I chatted about his newfound purpose for the rest of his time in the program. I gave him a book on prayer, and we prayed together for some of the other kids from his dorm, including a kid named Chris, who professed to be an atheist. After I left, Lance and I continued to write back and forth. This was back before email and direct messaging. Um, in one letter, he wrote, the other day, Chris announced at the dinner table, so remember, Chris is the kid who's an atheist, so Lance wrote, Chris announced at the dinner table that he is no longer an atheist. I have now changed my prayer from, Lord, please show Chris that you're real, to, Lord, Chris needs to know you personally. Please help him make the decision to accept and follow you. Unfortunately, Roberts writes, this was the last letter I received from Lance. A few weeks later, one of the program administrators called me on the phone. Are you sitting down, she asked. There's been an awful tragedy here this week. A group of boys from one of our dormitories was swimming in the river, and a flash flood suddenly swept three of the boys downstream, including Lance. We rescued two of them, but we couldn't reach Lance in time. 
Dwight, I'm sorry to tell you, Lance is dead. I sat in stunned silence trying to figure out how to respond. The administrator paused for a moment to let the difficult news sink in, then, consider, then continued. Dwight, there's more I want to tell you. As we were cleaning out Lance's locker and sorting through his belongings, we came across some things you sent him, encouraging letters and a book about prayer. The book had highlights and notes all through it. We also found his prayer journal. We were amazed at how many kids and situations he was praying for. We've been piecing together a lot of recent things that have happened as a result of Lance's prayers. She went on to share specific answers to prayer. Discouraged staff members ready to give up, experiencing new strength and joy and purpose in their work. Students struggling for years with emotional and spiritual issues now showing new signs of growth and victory. Even some of the most troubled kids experiencing major breakthroughs in their attitudes and behaviors we now realize that Lance prayed for these needs, she said, and God answered his prayers. We're amazed. Single-handedly, a teenage kid impacted our program, staff, and students through his life, through his prayers. Several weeks later, I learned that five kids gave their lives to Christ at Lance's funeral. One of them was Chris, the former atheist. He'd watched Lance's life more closely than anyone realized, and he experienced God's love through Lance before he even believed God existed. Chris and the other kids embraced God's love because a fellow student caught a vision for the role he could play in their lives. Isn't that, a, isn't that encouraging? Lance had discovered his purpose, what it meant that he was made in God's image. He realized what it meant that he had been crowned with glory so he could point others to a glorious God. So that leads to the second reason the psalm gives for God making us in God's own image. And that is that God made us to rule this world for God. Verse 6, you made humans rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. God made us in his image so that we would rule and lead God's world and God's creation. What does it mean to be in the image of God? It means that we are made to rule and to lead. Not just kings are to rule. As the ancient world saw it, kings were the image of God. They got to rule. No, God says, all of you, even kids like Lance, you are all to rule. You have been created, like me, in my image, to rule. And when we rule well, we bring glory and honor to the one who made us to rule. Now, of course, when the Bible tells us to rule, it's not telling us to boss everyone around. <laughs> it's not giving us permission to oppress others or to oppress God's creation. That's not the way God rules, and it's not the way God wants us to rule. We'll talk about this more next Sunday, and, and the way the image of God in us has gotten warped and tarnished in the way we tend to rule. But, but for now, let's step back and look at this psalm again and see what it has to say about us ruling God's world. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens... 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. When I look up into the, the heavens, I see the stars shining. I see them sparkling with glory. And, and the sun and the moon, so glorious. But to fully understand this and the way the psalmist is experiencing this, um, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the psalmist. Because when we who live after the scientific revolution look at the heavens, we think, oh, look at all those far off gaseous balls out there, right? But that's not what the psalmist saw when they looked at the stars. When ancient peoples looked into the heavens, they thought they were looking up into the realm inhabited by angels and deities. And many ancient pagan people assumed the stars and heavenly bodies were gods or angels or heavenly beings. Of course, the Bible teaches us there's only one God. But that doesn't mean people in Bible times didn't look at the stars and closely connect them with angels and heavenly beings. Whether they thought they actually were angels or not, they certainly closely connected them. After all, stars are bright, stars glisten, stars are in heaven, unlike us down here. We don't glow in the dark. We don't shine with brilliance. So to see the heavenly bodies was to see something glorious. To see the stars was to think about the angels. To see the glory and brightness of the sun was to be reminded of the greatness and holiness, the blinding, life-giving power of God. And in some sense, they believed the sun, moon, and stars ruled the heavens, right? Genesis 1. On the fourth day, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. God also made the stars, and God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth and to govern or rule the day and the night. And so the psalmist looks into the heavens and, and thinks about all of this, and they muse, when I consider your heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars, what is mankind down here that you are mindful of them, human beings? that you care for them. In other words, I see the mighty heavenly bodies in heaven and how God rules with, with glory in heaven along with his angelic hosts shining with glory. And then I look down to the earth, to the mud and the dirt and the sod, and I think, who rules this place? Who's in charge down here? And I answer, not just a great king who can wear enough gold and jewelry to shine like the stars, but not, not, not some exalted ruler, but, but no, God has put people, all of us, can you believe it? All of us in charge down here. The way God rules this world, the way God gets things done down here is not angels primarily, it's people. The earth is the realm, the territory, where people are responsible to rule. So let me ask you, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is that prayer going to get answered? How is God's kingdom going to come 
And how is God's will going to get done on earth? The answer is through people like Lance and people like you and me. Those made in God's image. I love what Gary Haugen, the, the founder and leader of International Justice Mission, once said. He said, in the face of tragedy, I've stopped asking, where is God? And I've started asking, where are God's people? Gary Haugen is thinking biblically, he understands the image of God. Before my senior year in college, I, I went on a mission trip to Romania, and we visited and worked with a number of uh, churches while we were there. And we also connected with and spent time with a Roma church, the people we used to call gypsies. And one of the things I noticed talking with, with some of the leaders of this church, I still remember the conversation, was whenever one of the problems in the church or in their, their band, their tribe came up, the, the leaders would shrug and say, if God wants to fix it, God will fix it. They had a very fatalistic view of the world. But sometimes I wonder if some of us are that different. We, we pray that God will fix things, our church, our government, our schools, our family. But do we realize that God has made us rulers in God's own image, rulers over the works of God's hands? Do we realize that we, made in God's image, that means that we are responsible to fix this world? Not without God's help, not without God's guidance, of course, but God works through people, people who trust him, people who pray to him, people who are willing to be used by him. So as we close, I want to invite you to turn to the person next to you and tell them, I am made in God's image and so are you. Then tell them you are valuable to God. Lastly, tell them you have a purpose to glorify God and to rule his world. Amen. May it be so.